Thank you for listening to Eclipse Epics. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 7, 1939. Last time, we introduced Joseph Stalin as he ascended to the premiership after Lenin's death. After that, we completed his subjugation of the Soviet military machine as well as the state. Looking outward, one thing immediately leaped out as an existential threat to him. As fascism appeared on an accelerated path to world domination, Stalin's worst fear was an anti-Soviet Europe allying himself to an imperial Japan to finish off the Soviet Union once and for all. As a result of this fear, Stalin actively fomented war between the West and the Axis powers like a shrewd racetrack handicapper. He started to chip away at the potential for that anti-communist bloc by re-securing diplomatic contact with the rest of the world. As a result, an uneasy peace between the rest of the world and the Soviet Union began to emerge, starting with Stalin going to China. China was under the rule of Republican Chiang Kai-shek. Kai-shek was more of a vociferous anti-communist than a Republican. In this case, it's small r, Republican. He infamously said that he would rather kill 100 innocent people than see a single communist go free. This reestablishment of dialogue between communists and very not communists became the first step to normalizing relations with the rest of the free world. Also in the 1930s, in the early 1930s, Stalin signed non-aggression pacts with France, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and Finland. Four of those states were former territories of Tsarist Russia and would play a huge role in the critical year of 1939. As the effort to reestablish contact with the West continued, Stalin resumed official connection with the United States in 1933. Stuart D. Goldman, author of Nohaman, 1939, hypothesizes this mood was made, quote, partly to create the impression of Soviet-American solidarity against possible Japanese aggression, end quote. Stalin needed that impression because around this time, Japan began a process that had been building since before the Russo-Japanese War, which included an invasion of Manchu Kuo and the raping of Nanking. The Japanese worried the Soviets greatly at this time. Imperial Japan was extremely anti-communist and anti-Russian as anyone else. In the eventuality of having to deal with its western border, Stalin had to check the Japanese to redirect their imperial ambitions. The opportunity to check Imperial Japan came in the summer of 1939, when a border dispute between Japanese-occupied Manchu Kuo and the Soviet buffer state of Mongolia escalated into a limited war. A young General Zhukov applied tactics developed by the dead Tukhachevsky, like independent tank units and tanks coupled with mobile infantry, to defeat the Japanese very handily. As a result of the Soviet Union crushing an unprepared Japanese army, the diplomatic ice between the Nazis and the Soviets finally broke. By broke, I mean that the shell game Stalin was playing with the Western democracies and Hitler to gain the most advantageous deal for him finally stopped. A superficial reading of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact looks patently absurd for two main reasons. First, the future war between these nations removes any probability at the time of the signing of Molotov-Ribbentrop that there might be peace between the two. Within two years of its signing, Hitler is going to invade the Soviet Union, leading to his own ruin. Second, 
Some people think Stalin actually trusted Hitler. You no doubt have heard the praises for Dan Carlin, host of Hardcore History, sung on this very podcast. His series on the Eastern Front of the Second World War is one of his best. But even Carlin falsely attributes the motive of trust to Stalin when dealing with Hitler. A guy like Stalin didn't trust even his own family, and he certainly didn't trust Hitler. Stalin knew a war with Hitler was imminent. Hitler knew, sooner rather than later, he was going to have to fulfill his campaign promise of Lebensraum in the East for the Aryan race. Stalin and Hitler signed that pact mostly to buy time to shore up flanks and invade Poland. The Soviet Nazi non-aggression pact also looks absurd if you only focus, like many historians, especially in the West, on 1939 through a totally Eurocentric view. That view completely missed a large logical reason for Stalin to sign this treaty. Hitler was currently allied with Tojo's Japan while the Soviet Union was fighting that limited war near Manchukuo with Japan. Stalin knew Hitler was looking for a dance partner to invade Poland. The Western powers quite loudly drew a red line at the German-Polish border. Most significantly, Britain made itself crystal clear by giving Hitler a simple if-then statement. If you invade Poland, then you will be at war with Britain and France at the very least. Hitler was still undeterred from invading Poland, but he had to shore up his eastern flank with the only other power in Europe who conveniently would really want Hitler's help. The Soviet Union in agreeing to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, needed the Nazi dictator to broker a ceasefire with Japan to secure Stalin's eastern border. Hitler agreed to those terms, and the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact was signed by Molotov and Ribbentrop. While Hitler was working on a convincing way to tell the Kwangtung army to back the hell off, Poland instigated a border crisis necessitating a German response on September 1st, 1939. The German invasion of Poland triggered one of the secret parts of Molotov-Ribbentrop, the carving up of Poland. The Soviet Union would invade some two weeks later after the conclusion of the agreement between Molotov and Tojo brokered by Hitler. One of the men put in charge of the Soviet invasion of Poland was Simon Tomaschenko, a man we'll have cause to deal with later on in this podcast series. At the time of the Soviet invasion, the Nazis had all but completed their conquest on their side of Poland. Pretty soon after, the Soviets conquered their half of Poland. With Poland pulverized, it was time for Stalin to turn his attention to the former Tsar's territories in the Baltic region. This meant abandoned a conciliatory position of non-aggression pacts with Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in favor of a position of pressuring them into mutual assurance pacts basically making them vassal states of the Soviet Union. And this is according to uh, Karl Van Dyke. These three states buckled under that pressure, signing on to contribute directly to the USSR's defense in various ways and giving up all pretense of freedom in the process. The next country on Stalin's list, as outlined in the secret parts of Molotov-Ribbentrop, was yet another Tsarist territory, the former Grand Duchy. Of Finland. Diplomatic pressure on Finland began the year before the fall of Poland, 1938. According to Vesa Ninai, the author of a series of books called Finland at a War, the Soviets approached 
Finnish diplomats expressing anxiety over a possible Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union through Finland. The Soviets wanted Finland to defend against that attack and accept direct aid from the Soviet Union, i.e. boots on the ground, to help thwart any German invasion. Finland would not agree to any such terms, but did promise to protect itself to repel any, read, Soviet troops entering its country. Reasons for such defiance lay with Finland having a proud history of autonomy and Carl Gustav Mannerheim. Throughout the interwar period, Mannerheim consistently advocated for greater reliance on the Defense Corps, while others, for one reason or another, supported cuts to the military budget. Mannerheim's advocacy would be underpinned with the specter of the rise of that Ren menace on Finland's eastern border, coupled with the global geopolitical chessboard being thrown into upheaval by worldwide economic depression and the rise of totalitarian states. One result of Mannerheim's constant politicking for stronger defense was the Mannerheim line. This line was made to look like the equal or better of the Maginot or Siegfried lines by the upcoming fumbling, bumbling, and stumbling Soviet invasion. The reality was less imposing than the myth. The line was located on the Karelian Isthmus, a slim, rough region between the Gulf of Finland and Lake Ladoga. The reason it was put there is outlined by William R. Trotter, the author of A Frozen Hell. He says, quote, The key to Finland was the Isthmus and only the Isthmus. End quote. This line, designed to keep the rest of Finland locked and its key thrown away, incorporated the rough terrain of the Isthmus to bolster its strength while minimizing the cost. The Mannerheim line was designed to do three things. First, it was expected to stop, or at least slow, a conventional invasion when combined with guerrilla tactics. Second, the Mannerheim line was built to protect the city of Vaipuri, the biggest city on the Karelian Isthmus, currently under Finnish control. This city was disputed by the Finns and the Russians for the last century. Under Russian control, the city had the name of Voiborg. The final thing the Mannerheim line was constructed to do was stop a breakthrough from flowing into the Finnish heartland toward Helsinki. There would be three main defensive zones based on the idea of defense in depth developed during the Great War by the Germans. The best description on these zones I have read comes from Carl Van Dyke and his book, The Soviet Invasion of Finland, 1939-1940. It says the first zone extended from the Soviet-Finnish border on the Isthmus back several kilometers from it. This zone was called the Obstacle Zone. It was populated by a smattering of minefields and machine gun nests. Van Dyke said the purpose of this zone was to delay the Soviets as long as possible. The next zone was the Main Defensive Zone, which Carl Van Dyke refers to as, quote, a discontinuous series of concrete fortifications, machine gun nests, anti-tank traps, and personnel barriers, end quote. This also incorporated the train of the Isthmus to strengthen the line and covered the Isthmus from the Gulf of Finland to the Lake Ladoga. Between Veopuri and the main defensive zone, there were two more fortified areas, but these were less so compared to the main defensive zone. Those 
fortified areas had about 40 concrete bunkers that were supposed to keep any onslaught from reaching Valpuri. We can call this zone the intermediate zone. If any onslaught didn't in fact reach Valpuri, there was a zone built around its defense. We can refer to this as the rear zone. Hopefully, with some expert level diplomacy, the Finns can avoid that fate. After the consolidation of Eastern Poland, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, Finland soon saw itself called to Moscow in October 1939 to renegotiate terms of that non-aggression pact signed with the Soviets back in the mid-1930s. The Finnish delegation sent to Moscow was under very strict guidelines. It was to stick to the previous, more favorable treaties with the USSR. This delegation was barred from making any agreement with the Soviet Union that included Soviet military bases on Finnish territory, Karelian Isthmus boundary changes, or any proposal of a mutual assistance pact. With that in mind, next week we'll see what the Soviet Union decided to offer. And hint, since the season is about a war, one would guess that offer would not be a good one. Talk to you guys later.